what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. is a Professor of Epidemiology at the University of York and Fellow of the RSA and the UK Faculty of Public Health. She's the co-author, together with Richard Wilkinson, of the worldwide best-selling The Spirit Level, which was chosen as one of the top 10 books of the decade by The New Statesman and one of the top 100 books of the century by The Guardian. She's a co-founder and trustee of the Equality Trust, and most importantly, of course, she's a patron of Humanists UK. Kate, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start with something that I think from your work and all your published uh, ideas and and hearing you speak is a very important value for you, the very obvious one, the value of equality. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's it's not just the subject of my academic work, but I think it is it is sort of underpinning value in my life. Yeah. And tell us a bit about that. First of all, why? How do you think that that came to be the case for you? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question, isn't it? I mean, all children are brought up, I suppose, being told that fairness is a really important value, um, you know, from from youngest ages. And the complaint that it's not fair is, you know, very, very characteristic of, of, of small children. And almost always, you know, you get you get parents saying, well, you you must share and you must treat fairness as, as if it's something really important. And then as you get a bit older, you start to hear from adults things like, well, life's not fair. You know, you can't expect you can't expect things to be fair. And it's a bit of a contradiction, you know, that those messages to to little children and then then what people get told as they get a bit older. Um, but I suppose in in my upbringing that that was important. My parents were um, Labour voters, you know, sort of consciously left wing um and so those egalitarian principles i think i think were always mm-hmm. there and and then just as i grew up i suppose it was a growing awareness of how hierarchy and um privilege act in the world and and feeling that that those things were not right and probably it really crystallized for me when i went to university because I came from, I came from, um, you know, I went to a comprehensive school. I came from a very sort of middle class sort of background. My parents were uh, came from working class backgrounds, but you know, through through on on the job education and had become we'd become a sort of middle class family. And then I went to Cambridge, where I suddenly encountered, you know, an entirely different world of privilege and. Um, and class that made me think about those things much, much more consciously than I had before. 
what did it make you think? I mean, what did you you you, you saw this and uh, this different way of this different class of people, this different way of being, and you um, it it triggered personal thoughts or social thoughts? Both, I think. I mean, I think um, it, it was clear to me that there was a there was great what I would characterise as unfairness in the whole schooling system and admissions system. So there we were at this um, prestigious university that offers, you know, really excellent education, and it truly does. Mm. And people's access to that was being shaped by things that were not to do with their um, work ethic or performance or intelligence or anything of that, that sort. It was being shaped by what school they went to and therefore by how much money their parents had. Mm. And all of that felt felt wrong. So I felt conscious there that there were people missing from that context, that there were people who who could have benefited from that and who should have been there in a way and who were not there. And, you know, that was to do with family incomes, to do with social class, to do with ethnicity, to do with the schools they went to. And instead, this 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 was being provided to a very narrow group mm. of people. And that didn't feel right. But I also, I felt quite sorry, I think, for a lot of the really posh people <laughs> because I thought they'd got no idea about the real world or, you know, how the other half live. And um, I think they'd, they'd led quite quite sheltered lives and had quite quite narrow perspectives. So I didn't, yes, it had got... You weren't them. envious of them. No, I you wasn't were, envious yeah, of yeah. them. Um, I think it had got... They, they'd got to this amazing place, but they'd come there with with quite a narrow outlook on life. Um, I mean, I think for some of them, going to university certainly widened that. Mm. Um, mm. But I, I mean, I think that whole our, our entire system of schooling segregates us from one another in ways that that are harmful. I think to to levels of trust within society and 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 how we understand one another. Well, there's a lot there to come back to, and I think we hope we'll come back to all of it. But I, I asked the question about equality, and and, and in, in in what you've said since you've, you've focused really on fairness, is this is this the same thing? Because I mean, you're talking about giving people opportunities and noticing at university the people who hadn't had the opportunities and that that was unfair. Um, I suppose fairness doesn't lead naturally to equality, does it? Or No, I mean, they're closely related. Okay, tell us about but, that. But they're not exactly the same. I mean, fairness, I think, yeah, you know, we think of it as a sort of a moral value, whereas equality is much more much more practical, isn't it? It's to do with, with what we have access to, what we, what we do or do not have. And, and that can be material things, such as equality of income, but it can also be more um, ephemeral things like equality in the face of the law. Um, so yeah, they're not they're not the same, but they are they are related. Mm. So if fairness is a moral value, then are you saying that equality is is something to work towards? It's a sort of aspiration for society. Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, I'm always sort of quite impressed by the way Quakers talk about it actually and as, as having a you know testimony t- towards equality I think that's sort of the way I I think about it as well people get 
um, a bit sort of bent out of shape when they talk about equality. And they, we can never have equality, you know. And, um, and we can never truly be equal. Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. it's utopian, um, and and to a certain extent that's true. But we can have more equality, um, and we can work towards reducing inequality gaps in 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 various aspects. So we can think about working towards um, reducing gender pay gaps for example and and that's improving equality and even if we don't get to exactly the same then then we're still making progress so i think that that idea of complete equivalence Mm. that utopian idea that makes people say it's nonsense and you can't have it um i'm just not interested in that argument really because we Mm. can always we can always do better and a lot of the things that i think that anti egalitarians talk about when they're talking about equality as utopian i think they're not understanding properly so they they talk a lot about well we all have different sort of capabilities and talents you know not recognizing that what we measure as talents and and stuff is itself quite often shaped by inequalities Mm. um you know, and they, they they think of they think of life society as a sort of meritocracy where where the superintelligent should be rewarded much more highly, and and I don't think that we have such huge differences actually in in things like natural intelligence and and what we see as measured intelligence is shaped by the kinds of things I was talking about earlier by schools, by expectations, by family background. Mm-hmm. Um, and then anyway, anyway, I'm not so sure that we should have something where, where people who do particular kinds of tasks get valued so much more than people who do other kinds of tasks when right. all of those separate tasks are really important for the functioning of a, of a decent society. So a lot of your work, and certainly the work that you became most famous for in the, the book, The Spirit Level, um, examines that society level uh, picture. Um, in terms of the impact of equality, both on those who have more uh, as well as those who have less. Tell us a little bit about that, because that, I think, um, although, you know, uh, academic work, albeit for a broad audience, um, obviously also reflects your own personal priorities and what you believe and what you what you think about it. So tell us a bit about the sort of the premises for that work and the conclusions that you came to. Sure. So so in the spirit level, what what Richard Wilkins and I were showing was that um, Societies that have a greater levels of income inequality, so a bigger gap between um, the incomes of the rich and the poor, do worse, perform worse on a whole range of, of different outcomes, um, health and social outcomes. So that includes everything from physical and mental health and things like obesity um, to um, what we might think of as sort of human capital development, how well kids do in school, social mobility teenage pregnancy rates, but also things to do with social cohesion, like trust, um, levels of violence, imprisonment. Um, And a society that does worse on one does does worse on all of them. And they're all, you know, significantly related to to inequality. Um, And the differences are really big. You know, the differences are are stark, Um, eightfold differences between more and less equal countries in rates of teenage pregnancy, 12-fold differences in levels of imprisonment, three to four-fold in in, in mental illness. And that's because um, 
these aren't just um, effects that affect the poor. Um, the whole population, you know, is tending to do less well. So if you or I, um, as well-educated, sort of middle-class, probably decently paid individuals, were to live in a more equal society, our life expectancy would on, on average be higher and our children would be less likely to drop out of school, etc. So, So those were the findings. What drove us to do it, I suppose, is an, an, an interesting question. Um, I mean, really, it's coming out of um, a strong tradition in in public health to look at the social determinants of health mm. broadly um, and to understand the social context that, that shapes health. And I suppose one of the key findings in social epidemiology over the past few decades has been the importance of two things. One is relative social position, you know, how you're doing relative to others um, so that it's not just your, um, say, income that matters, but where that places you mm-hmm. in a hierarchy, in a ranking and how you feel about that. And then also sort of social connectivity, you know, your relationships to, to other people and the, the quality of those um, and so an emphasis on, on psychosocial determinants of, of health and well-being had become quite strong. And all we were doing really is showing that in more unequal societies, you know, all of that stuff becomes more important. Um, the inequality, I suppose, heightens, heightens the importance, the salience of those social comparisons, those ranking factors. It's as if the social ladder, because all societies have a, social ladder but it's as if it's become um steeper and the rungs further apart um and the consequences then that has for for all of those those different outcomes and was it a surprise to you as it certainly must have been a surprise to the the readers of your work that you know among the victims of inequality were the better off even in societies um you know, like, like say in societies where uh, the gaps were were big, everyone was a victim. I mean, that's sort of, you know, pe- that's a surprise to people, right? There's... Yeah, I think that is a surprise to people. I mean, I think that's something that probably dawned on us fairly gradually. There were some early, I say early, I'm talking about some 1990s, there were some analyses that other people had done that were starting to suggest that. Um, one I remember very clearly was um, comparing infant mortality rates in England and Wales with Sweden um, and seeing that at all levels of social class, you know, across the social gradient, those rates were higher in England and Wales than they were in Sweden. And so we we were seeing a sort of uh, a deficit about being from England and Wales, even at the top of, of mm. society. And I think that evidence just getting stronger and stronger. But then when you invoke that that psychosocial explanation that it is to do with how we feel we rank in society, where we feel we're placed, how we feel other people view us, then I think it starts it it it's it's more understandable why somebody who's not at the top, but 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 near the top might still be disadvantaged by not being at the very top. Whereas if you were thinking about health and other outcomes just in terms of material things like like income itself, why would you have a difference near the top? Everybody's got sufficient. Um, so the psychosocial 
pathways and explanations, I think, help to help to clarify why those social gradients exist and why those of us even near the top do less well than than if we're at the very, very top and do less well than we would in a more equal society. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. And that idea of, of an important thing, be, you know, being at ease in the society you're in um, feeds through to the, the sort of follow on book, although it was follow on 10 years later, wasn't it? Um, about, <laughs> which is a perfectly respectable period of time for a, for a sequel 10 years, um, called The Inner Level, where you looked a little bit more at, well, um, the inner life of people in, in equal and unequal societies. Yeah, so that was really, the inner level was to do with us wanting to understand those pathways. So if, we, if we've got a picture where we know that um, all of those health and social problems are worse in more unequal societies, you know, how does that happen? How does, how does inequality sort of get under the skin? And, and we know that really all those outcomes that we're looking at to do with chronic stress and, and, and people's perceptions of, of how they're seen being a strong indicator of that. So that book was about exploring that really um, in detail, really trying to look at those those pathways and those those mechanisms. And it took a long time because that one was much more, I suppose, done from scratch. When we wrote The Spirit Level, we had an accumulated mass of, of analysis to, to share. And the reason we wrote the book was because we felt that there was this picture that wasn't known about um, beyond a very small academic readership and so it was wanting to to get that message out and synthesize those data the inner level took longer because I think thinking about how things happen is always a bit more challenging than thinking about whether they're there or not but also some of the evidence that we pulled together in the inner level um, was I suppose that those analyses were inspired by people reading the spirit level so people read the spirit level and then went out to to in a sense test mm-hmm. test those pathways and so over the next few years you know there were there was starting to be a body of evidence that was accumulating that had been a response to the spirit level and and wasn't there before and so we we were ourselves sort of you know trying to pull that picture together at the same time that other people were trying to analyze those pathways so that i think that's why it took so long it's also the diff- difficult second album problem, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, that's, <laughs> but it, um, but it's, uh, it, it, it should be influential in the same way. I think that book. I suppose it was unfortunate it came just before the pandemic, and so the people's concerns um, shifted a little bit, uh, even in the narrow field of public health, I guess. But um, beyond the immediate concerns that everyone has at the moment, do you think? Do you think that attention will? focus back on questions of equality for for social peace and personal satisfaction in the future do you think it's if you've got the sense it's a growing field i think so i mean yeah i think i think so so when we wrote the spirit level inequality was really not 
a matter of public discourse. It wasn't on the political agenda. It wasn't on the policy agenda. People didn't really talk about it. Um, that's changed. You know, that's not only our work, of course, but that has changed. And now I don't think you would find a mainstream political party willing to say that inequality was not important. Um, and and you see you see an acknowledgement of the problem of inequality at multiple levels. So we see at international level, the OECD are very focused on it, the World Bank talk about it, the International Monetary Fund talk about it. I think the World Economic Forum at one point had it listed as, as top of their sort of list of future problems, you know, problems that are likely to, to affect um, economic growth and development in the future. So a real shift at that level, um, a real shift in discourse in our national politics, if not action mm. um, and then in indeed discussion at local at local level as well so I think there has been a a real growing understanding of the problem um, and that is a necessary first step I suppose in in us seeing policy and political change to reduce inequality you said COVID's been a, a distraction from that, and it, it's, it sort of has, but it's also been an, an amplification, I think, of the idea that inequality is problematic. You know, in part, the reason we had, we in the UK and in England and Wales in particular, ha- had a bad pandemic is to, a lot to do with the inequalities that existed in our society before, before COVID. Um, socioeconomic inequalities, ethnic inequalities, health inequalities, so that we were not a resilient, robust population. Mm. You know, we had all kinds of problems that just just COVID sort of exploited, made, made worse. And so we saw rates of illness, um, rates of exposure, rates of illness, rates of death mu- much higher among the poor, among the disadvantaged, among ethnic minorities, etc. Um, and so if we had been a more equal society with fewer health inequalities, socioeconomic inequalities, we would not have had such a bad pandemic. And, and that's an important lesson, I think, as we think about building back and, and the future, because that won't be the last pandemic we have to deal with. And I think also there's growing attention to the role of inequality um, in terms of us thinking about the climate emergency and the need to transform to sustainable economies. Um, I think you know tackling inequality needs to be seen as central there and, and is starting to be seen in, in that way. So, it, yeah, it feels like the climate and the environmental crises, along with thinking about lessons learned from COVID, should focus us very much on on reducing inequality. And then at the same time, of course, in, in this country, we've got the government's um, levelling up agenda. So we, we have rhetoric that is right in this space about trying to reduce regional and other inequalities. Mm. Um, so so we've got the language there and 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 an expressed intent. Now we have to wait and see what what gets put in place to to try and achieve that. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the proponents of that particular policy, of course, went 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 a little bit out of their way to um, 
stressed how it wasn't about reducing inequality per se, but <laughs> because they didn't want to, you know, reduce the gap by bringing people at the top down. They wanted to um, reduce the gap by bringing the people at the bottom up, but with nothing allowing people at the top yeah. to still get even higher and higher was, was the... Was yeah, the and, and, and that's a fundamental, you know, misconception, I think, really on the right that, that you know, that the only thing that needs attention is is what's going on at the bottom. And right. certainly what's going on at the bottom, that is important. You know, we do need to see um, increases in, in people's employment um, stability and increases in people's incomes and protections of of, of their employment and income rights and, and attention paid to the cost of living crisis and all of that. But because inequality itself is a problem and not just poverty, then we really do need to think about how we how we tackle the top. Um, and there we can start to think about top incomes, but even more importantly is thinking about assets and wealth. Um, how hopeful do you feel? I mean, on, on a global level, you know, the, the, if you think of two babies born today, you know, there's a baby born today that will die tomorrow and then there's a baby born today that might live to 150 in incredible comfort have you know some of the greatest levels of human happiness and fulfillment ever known to our species um probably you know those two babies are being born today they'll have those different destinies simply because of their fortune or or, or lack of it that's a really that's a really dark context in which to be aspiring to reduce inequality isn't it the global context today so does it doesn't does it make you pessimistic for the chances of doing it or? Um, no, it doesn't really. Um, is that because you're a hopeful person? Yeah, I think it is because I'm a hopeful person or maybe I just fun- function better <laughs> with, <laughs> with an optimistic out- outlook. Um, I mean, I think we're talking about huge challenges and we're talking about the need for long-term action and shifts you know and things things this this won't change overnight but i i, I suppose there's two things that no there's three things that give me hope <laughs> i just managed to think of a third the first is that our level of inequality isn't just sort of a static thing. You know, it's it's not just that, you know, we in the UK, we've always been an unequal country and there's nothing we can do to fix it. And that country over there has always been, you know, America's always been unequal. There's nothing they can do about it. You know, one does see changes in inequality in societies over time that are shaped by um, by government policy and, and, and by other um, aspects of social change. So change can happen. So that's a hopeful thing because it means we're not stuck with some some rigid things that that can't move. Um, We used to be um, as equal as Sweden is today. No reason why we can't be again. You know, our top tax rates used to be 90 percent. No reason why they couldn't be again. You know, so 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 that's one thing that gives me hope is that there is always potential for change. The second is um, young people give me hope if we look at the voting patterns of young people the voting preferences what they say about what matters to them um i think that gives me hope for the future um 
I mean, this is, this is sort of an aside, but um, you're probably aware of, you know, you know, we had our Brexit referendum in the UK and it went it went one way, but only by a very small margin. And people calculated that if that vote had taken place just a few months later, you know, or a year later, mm. the result would have been different simply because of demographic shifts, you know, in, in the older people who were more likely to vote that we should should leave had died and more young people who were more likely to think that we should remain had passed the age of 18. So, so demographic change... That really matters. That illustrates really the importance matters, yeah. of that. Yeah. And, 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 and I do think that young people today, I think, give, give me hope in their sort of social attitudes to all kinds of things, and greater equality is, is one of them. And then the other thing, I suppose, is the hope that the the drastic challenges that that we're faced with in the environment will shift our attention to what needs to change in the social and economic world to address those problems, that that might actually shape what we do. So I'm not without hope. Oh, I've just thought of a fourth reason. Oh, you've got more reasons to be cheerful than I <laughs> ever thought existed. Yeah. If, <laughs> if we look, so if we look back at other social changes where people have been um, given rights or um, there's been social change in, in, in the acceptance of different social groups, so if we think about feminism and gay rights movement and, and those sorts of things, change there has been quite rapid. Um if you take a sort of social scale view of it. Um, and, and none of those changes came about because people in power decided to extend the franchise or extend rights or um, support people. They, those came about from grassroots movement and pressure for change. And then the politics at the top shifted in alignment with that those grassroots movements. So I think we can see large amounts of social change in a short time um so there's my fourth reason it's interesting that you're hopeful because um obviously as you pointed out things you know it, it just taking the uk as a, as a you know small example um it was a a very unequal country and then a less unequal country and now it's a more unequal country again you know it's not uh linear progress is it this 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 social change that you no. want to see but you're still optimistic and hopeful about it even though you've i'm you trying to take go, a longer view yeah and, a, um, a longer view okay so ha- that, that's that's interesting is that something that you believe in i mean it's obviously i know that your work is scale is important to your work obviously in the way of taking a society-wide view but how do you work with sort of time scales in your view as well when you think about increasing human happiness or increasing yeah. equality or decreasing inequality what sort of what sort of well i just finished um richard and i've just been reviewing um thomas Piketty's new book yeah well exactly for nature um they asked us to, re- to review a number of books and we, we chose two and what that was one of them so thomas Piketty's new book is about so this um, is the history of history of inequality and, and he takes a very long view, actually. And I, I, I found that um, really interesting and really compelling because he does talk about a sort of long arc of progress um, towards um, more equality and, and a greater extension of, of rights and justice. He starts in the Enlightenment, doesn't he? Yeah. So 
in in that view, things like um, the hiccups of having progress derailed in the short term feel less important to me than than understanding that that long arc of progress. I think the other thing that um, I really took home from from reading that book of Piketty's was at one point in a later chapter, he talks about how we all talk about wanting greater equality. You know, if you ask most people, did did they think more equality is a good thing? Most people say yes, you know, and and if you particularly if you ask them if educational opportunities should be fair and, and equal, almost everybody says yes. And yet he says, look at our systems, you know. Right. They're, they're vastly unequal and we, we, we just talk about it and we don't do anything about it. So as well as pointing out that very long arc of progress, which I think, you know, we can, we can see ourselves still as, as being part of, um, we are still tolerating particular kinds of inequality, even if we've decided that we won't tolerate others. You know, so we no longer hang people. Um, we no longer deny women the vote. You know, we no longer flog people. We no longer um, enslave people. Um, this is so UK all, we. This is a UK we. Right, um, just to be clear. Just we, to be very we, clear. We human beings still do those things. Yes, we human beings still do those things. But but more and more, we don't do those yep. things. Yep. Um, and yet we still do allow particular kinds of inequality to go untouched even though we say we don't want them. And I think, I think that, was, that brought me up short, really, um, and made, made, made me think quite hard about why are certain kinds of inequalities still just allowed to exist, even without much, much discussion or protest. And did you answer your question? Um, no, not entirely. Um, I am starting to sort of think about this more deeply, about why it is that we have large bodies of evidence in the social sciences about what makes a good society, what makes a just society, that that don't get talked about mm. politically and, and don't get translated into action. So that's sort of what I'm thinking about at the moment. And and there's, there's there's loads of arenas where this happens. You know, we we know we've got big health inequalities in this country, you know that if you're born in in Kensington and Chelsea your life expectancy is vastly longer than if you were born in in parts of Blackpool for example. Right. You know, and and we know about those and we have report after report on on how bad they are and um and yet we don't tackle them by tackling the fundamental causes and we have the educational inequalities I was talking about earlier we don't we don't do anything about those you know all, all sorts of arenas where we've got strong evidence that our society could be a nicer better place um for for almost everybody if we did something and, and we don't yeah that's interesting me at the moment and that's that's what I'm thinking about currently I look forward to that book. 
fairness as a moral value, the benefits to all of reducing inequality, hopefulness in the cause of social change and taking the long view. Kate Pickett, thank you for telling us what you believe. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking me. It's been a pleasure. That was Kate Pickett speaking for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the sixth episode of the fifth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanists UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanists UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see there, please consider joining up as a supporter or member. You can also find out more about humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times best-selling book, The Little Book of Humanism, available in all good bookshops. Mm-hmm.